Hey, welcome to the Doc Porter Podcast. I'm Dave McVeigh, co-writer, along with my buddy Jim Ballone. Uh, thanks for choosing us. Every week we'll be dropping a new chapter, maybe even two, of our 2021 novel, The Doc Porter, which is set on Mackinac Island, Michigan, read by me. When we published the book in 2021, we really had no idea it would take off. It ended up winning a Michigan Notable Book Award and was an Amazon bestseller for like at least a few minutes. Uh, it seemed to have struck a chord, and it's been pretty amazing to see the whole thing take off. So why are we giving the book away on a podcast when we can also sell it on Audible, which we are selling it on Audible? That's actually a pretty good question. Um, in fact, now that you mention it, let's just forget this whole thing. I'm kidding. We're giving it away because we are building up to something really special. Um, coming in August 2023, we're releasing the prequel to The Doc Porter called Somewhere in Crime. In Somewhere in Crime, we go back even further to the summer of 1979. Mackinac Island was the backdrop for a Hollywood movie called Somewhere in Time, starring Christopher Reeve and Jane Seymour. The hero of the Doc Porter, Jack, was 11 that summer, and he was the paperboy. He ends up trying to solve a cold case murder while bumbling in and out of the Somewhere in Time production. So anyway, enjoy the Doc Porter and get ready for Somewhere in Crime, which is coming in August of 2023 to Amazon and the Mackinac Island Bookstore, and hopefully other outlets, TBD. Thanks again for listening. Chapter 8, Going Deeper, July 22nd, 1989. The next day between boats, I attempted to read Mitch Albom's write-up on the current Detroit Tigers debacle, one of life's masochistic pastimes. The boys of summer had had their feline asses handed to them by the California Angels, and it was looking like a sweep. My Tigers fandom was a chronic condition passed down from Big Jack, who'd taken me to see Al Kaline get his 3,000th hit club award at Tiger Stadium. I'd been hooked ever since. I scanned the Free Press sports page as a seagull greedily dug into an abandoned box of popcorn, but nothing in Mitch's sublime baseball prose was pulling me in. I couldn't stop thinking about Erin O'Malley. It was irritating and a little exciting. Her rock-solid rebuke had struck a chord. Go deeper? What did that even mean? And who was she to judge me? I was plenty deep. I read books and stuff. As I was folding up my free press to stow it under a bungee cord in my bike basket, Foster came skidding to a halt. Did you know Trina's having money troubles? I said. She might actually lose the wibho. Did you know I have hemorrhoids? He pointed to his butt. I might actually lose my anus, but by all means, continue. I want to help her out. I want to, I don't know, do something. Foster leaned his bike up against the freight shack, chuckling and shaking his head like Cool Hand Luke. Let me guess, the sexy cellist called you shallow. How the hell did he know that? No, I just, I want to help. Foster hit me with a knowing grin. Okay, Robin Hood, you know me. I love good cause, especially if it's hopeless. Trina's a good old gal. I lived at Wibho my first summer. What's the issue? Her taxes are past due, and it looks like Gordon Inc. is harassing her into selling. Foster smiled. I knew it. All roads lead to Ireland. So, what do you want to do? Pass the hat? He asked. I'm not sure, but it's a good start. 
The Doc Porters never had a cause, but it turned out we were pretty damn good at raising cash. I had met with Trina and looked over her papers. An accountant I was not, but as I sat in the tiny Wibho kitchen between boats, she outlined a pretty compelling case for being flat busted. Taxes on the island were no joke, and she was a simple island woman who rented rooms, not some new money bed and breakfast type with deep pockets. She plowed all her spare cash back into the hotel or into what she called her knock-me-out scotch fund. She worked her ass off, and she suffered from swollen ankles and spiking arthritis. Far be it for me to tell a 75-year-old woman not to enjoy her after-hours cocktails, although I did suggest that wearing 3-inch high-heeled pumps from the 50s was not ideal for her orthopedic issues. We still pocketed as much as we could for ourselves, but Trina was a new rallying cry. Something bigger than all of us. The Wib Hole was an island thing, and damn if we were going to let Gordon turn it into another pastel-painted, upscale, fake-authentic inn. There were plenty of those. This one was for the future offspring of the Wheelers, the honeymooning couple who stayed at the Wibho earlier that summer. We worked like dogs, covering each other's shifts with a hypercharged spirit of camaraderie. All our extra cash went straight into a locked suitcase, hidden under a forgotten stack of rotting life preservers in the freight shack. And day by day, the suitcase was filling up with sweaty bills, peeled off our fat tip rolls. It was a rhythmic quest, cash hitting palms on the beat, and money piling up in the suitcase. Bam, bam, bam. It built to a crescendo, like a jazz drummer solo. But would it be enough to pay off the Wibho's tax bill? We had no idea. We were dock porters, not hedge fund managers. When we finally got around to counting the money, July was almost over, and Trina's tax bill was nearly due. We sat around on luggage carts as the sun cast long, bike-shaped shadows. We were sweaty from another tough day, sipping cold beers out of brown paper bags, noses sun-fried and spirits high. Since the mad caper was my scheme, I counted the cash. Spangler sat next to me, checking my math, and Fly sat next to him, checking his. I organized bills in neat little piles. The scene had a distinctly on-the-waterfront vibe. I finished the count and looked up at the boys, letting out a sigh. Not even close. There was an audible groan. Smitty quickly hopped to his feet. Well, that's it then. There's only one option I can see. We fell silent, awaiting his idea. He took a deep breath and slowly surveyed the group and raised his eyebrows. We buy jet skis. The guys erupted in friendly boos and tossed a few empties at him, which he deftly ducked and dodged. What? Jet skis are a blast. We're not going to spend the money on jet skis, I said. But there might be another way. If you wanted to raise money on the island, like real money, you threw a party. I'd seen it my entire life growing up. The adults were always throwing parties for various causes. Big Jack said it best. Fundraisers give people an excuse to get loaded and feel good about it. Ours wouldn't be some high society gala auctioning off a gourmet dinner at the Grand or a wine and cheese hot air balloon ride over the Mackinac Bridge. No, this was a wild cliff bash. Antics for money. We posted flyers all over Main Street. We called it a fun razor. Spengler's clever wordsmithing. And the good word blasted across the Doc Porter Telegraph. There was going to be a party at Wildcliff to raise money for one of our own. $5 beers, $7 burgers, hot off the grill. Silent auction? Hardly. 
if all went according to plan, it was going to get very, very loud. Fundraising, August 1st, 1989. And it did get very, very loud. The crowd was solidly island stock. The guys had constructed a beer tent on the front lawn and music blasted classic rock from a set of old Yamaha speakers we borrowed from the Chamber of Commerce. Foster was operating the grill next to five coolers full of donated meat from Dowd's Grocery and the smell of beef, hot dogs, and corn on the cob wafted over the Wild Cliff lawn. He wore a white chef's hat, a rare menthol cigarette dangling from his lips. Guess he figured if you're going to suck and smoke for two hours, it may as well taste like a breath mint. The locals were chatting it up, holding red plastic cups, and children shrieked like untamed monkeys. On the porch, we had a full-on palm reading set up. Madame Fantastico, with her thick black hair, gypsy scarves, and sparkling, jangly jewelry, held fat Billy Briggs' palm. She was looking deep into his puffy eyes. She was known around town as June Hebbing and ran a souvenir shop on Main Street that sold rubber Indian spears and switchblade combs. But June had an alter ego and loved nothing more than to show up for parties and weddings in her full Fantastico garb. She agreed to donate all her profits to the cause, and there was already a line. I moved a bit closer to eavesdrop. You will meet a beautiful woman, she said in her best faux Hungarian. Billy looked around nervously. He spotted his matronly wife, her hair done up in a beehive 20 years out of style, and downing her second hamburger. He shifted in his chair and leaned close to Fantastico. When? I choked back a laugh and moved away, then caught my reflection in the porch window. I was wearing a blue blazer, clean jeans, and a red bow tie. It was a look. I figured if I was hosting a fun razor, I would have to step up my game. Respectable, but funky. Looking at the pictures from that night now, I cringe. I didn't look funky. I looked like a half-drunk weatherman. Later, after a spectacular sunset, the crowd swelled and the music got louder. On the front porch swing, chatting with Gramps, was the woman of the hour, Trina Lafram. I was worried that she might feel self-conscious, or worse, embarrassed, that her tax follies were exposed like a rash for all the island folks to see. But if it bothered her, she wasn't showing it. Gramps probably had something to do with that, as he laughed uproariously with her, sharing some outrageous island yarn. As I said, I was reasonably sure that some summer in the vintage past, the two of them had their own amorous adventures. Smitty wandered up to me, holding a cup of beer, wearing the same ill-fitting jacket he had been sporting the night of our spy mission. He inhaled his beer like a man emerging from the desert, following up with an insanely loud belch. It kept going, so he deftly switched to spelling out the vowels. A-E-I-O-U. And with one last reserve of gas, he rushed out the big finish. And sometimes, why? It was disgusting, yet brilliant. An older, raven-haired woman shot him a disapproving scowl. You're a pig, Smitty. A complete pig. Smitty lowered his head, chastened. Sorry, Aunt Betty. She resumed her conversation without missing a beat. Smitty stifled a giggle and whispered to me, My Aunt Betty hates me. That's because you're gross, I said. I know. You're right. I need to change. And I will change. Smitty hit me with a thoughtful, level gaze. Just probably not tonight. 
He surveyed the party. His mouth dropped open. He elbowed me and leaned close. Holy shit, that girl, the one with AJ, over there. I followed his look. She looks exactly like that movie actress. What's her name again? Corrine, Cammy, Cham, Cam, K, something. She was in a movie with the door, you know, where the door opens and it sucks everyone in and they're forced to see their own death. Damn it, what is her name? He was now punching himself in the temple, trying to bash her name into his brain. I looked over. The woman in question was chatting intently with AJ, wearing a rumpled Budweiser fishing hat, Ray-Bans, and jean cutoffs. She looked every bit the Michigan college girl. A lovely Michigan college girl, but still a Michigan college girl. I squinted doubtfully. Nah, that's... I looked over. Actually, I don't know who that is, but she's not famous. I think she's a waitron at the Huron Street Cafe, right? Smitty shook his head. I'm telling you, man, she looks like that actress. He took a deep breath and became oddly zen. He looked upward, willing himself to remember her name. He clicked his fingers. Candace Lane, that's her name. See, I knew I could remember if I just calmed the hell down and thought for a sec. I looked at her again, squinting. I don't see that at all. But of course, once again, Smitty was correct. It didn't look like Candace Lane. It was Candace Lane. But none of us knew that yet. Except, of course, AJ. I snatched a crappy microphone we had connected to the speakers. It was time to play MC and make some money. I'd like to raise a glass to my dad for allowing us to trash Wildcliff tonight. Big Jack, standing with friends, smiled sheepishly. And of course, a toast to my grandfather, his honor, the mayor. To you, Gramps. On it goes. The crowd, now gathered on the porch, echoed the sentiment. To appreciative applause, Gramps bowed theatrically, sweeping his Michigan ball cap with a flourish. Now, in 1922, legend has it that Doc Porters took on the local island polo team in a game we now call Porter Polo, bikes versus horses. But after Doc Porter Kirby Cotter had his tenders crushed by a Clydesdale in 1953, the game stopped. I paused, letting the boys add some of their own flourish to the story. In unison, they all held up their cups in a toast. To Kirby! I continued. But once a summer, the porters divide up and play each other for charity. Nowadays, it's bikes versus bikes. This year, we're playing for our guest of honor, Trina. The boys here raised 600 bucks for her little tax issue. We got another 300 here tonight, thank you very much. But we need to double it. So rather than a typical auction-type thing, Smitty grabbed the mic from me, which is lame. I grabbed it back. Yes, thanks, Smitty, for that insightful comment. I turned around to the crowd. We challenge anyone here to three-on-three Porter Polo. Rules are simple. You score on us, you keep the money. We score on you, you match the funds. Fly strolled up behind me wearing dark sunglasses and a black suit. His right wrist handcuffed to the red suitcase full of cash, like Jake Blues. In a matching black suit, Spangler trailed crossing his hands in front of him like Elwood Blues, standing guard, dead serious. The crowd roared, loving it. It was a lock that some flush islander would step up and take the bet, knock around a ball a few times, get skunked by the boys, a charade and a joke, but a charade and a joke for a noble cause. 
We double our money. We send Trina home happy, safe from the tax man for the rest of the summer. I looked around, waiting for a volunteer. I heard a voice from the back. You're on! Moving through the crowd with a pearly white shit-eating grin was Gordon. I choked out a laugh. It came out sounding a little forced. (laughs) Gordon Whitaker, I have to say. I'm impressed. I wasn't impressed. I was highly suspicious. Since I knew it was Gordon who was plotting to take the Wibho away from Trina not three weeks ago, I could only assume this was some sort of face-saving gesture. Where's your team? I asked. Right down there. Gordon smiled and pointed. The lawn crowd parted as three electric luggage carts wind their way up the side driveway of Wildcliff, each driven by a beer-wielding frat boy, each holding a mallet. My heart was now pounding. This scene wasn't in the script. Foster sauntered up to me, trying to go unnoticed, and whispered, Let it go. Jack, I understand if you're not up for it, Gordon called over. You can't beat golf carts on one-speed bikes. That's just stupid. Oh, but wait, didn't you once say that a golf cart can never replace a dock porter? The crowd murmured and laughed. Things were heating up, and hell, who didn't love a little competition at a party? Nobody understood the big picture, and why would they? In the corner of my eye, I could catch side bets going down, and money changing hands. Let's get it on, someone called out. I scanned the scene. My eyes finally landing on Erin, leaning against the porch railing with a glass of red wine. She looked vaguely uncomfortable, perhaps the only other person at the party that understood the subtext behind the showdown. She also looked stunning, casual in jeans and a denim shirt, long hair and a loose ponytail. I locked eyes with her for an instant. You're on, I said. The crowd roared. Tonight we drink, tomorrow we ride, I added for good measure gamely attempting to appear in control of my own fun-raiser. The truth was, I was shitting bricks. Looking back, the scene seems absurd. Three half-drunk guys in their early 20s lined up, side-by-side straddling their bikes and looking across a poorly lit field on the East Bluff at three other half-drunk guys sitting in golf carts, all holding polo mallets. You couldn't have created a more ridiculous juvenile face-off if you had a week to brainstorm and a bag of weed. There was no doubt that Gordon had set this entire situation up to make us look like complete fools. A screw you to me and the boys to punish us for our screw you to him and his family. It was an epic island screw you off. Makeshift goals were rigged up at either end of the field. Tiny kids soccer goals we had stored in the Wildcliff cellar. The sun was setting, and the long shadows of the birch trees strafed the ground. Foster and Smitty were smacking a ball back and forth between them. I signaled for them to huddle up. It was time to get this over with. We'll get the ball first and run a Kirby double dribble. Boom. Two passes and a crossover. It'll be over like that. Trust me, they're freaking. I reassured the guys as they looked across the field at the electric carts dubiously. Gordon and his two cronies were lounging in their carts, chatting sipping from red plastic cups full of Stroh's beer and chuckling at some inside joke. My Stroh's beer. They looked as calm as yogis, if yogis happened to be in college fraternities. While the rest of the island was enjoying the showdown as another quirky island duel between two old pals, I knew Gordon's motivations better than anyone. 
Yes, he wanted Trina's place, but he also wanted to make his own statement by demonstrating how outdated the Doc Porter concept was. A quaint but obsolete relic of an older time. Put to music, Gordon's metaphor went like this. Sleek luggage carts were the Beatles, and we were nothing but a crew of irrelevant fat Elvises and rhinestone jumpsuits. In his mind, it was time to exile all of us back to Graceland to croak on the toilet. Rick the shit sweeper strolled out on the field with a whistle and a lit Pall Mall in his mouth. He was wearing his ever-present government-issue green jumpsuit. His expression was droll, as if he wasn't exactly sure why he was there. Gordon goosed the accelerator, and his cart skidded to a halt two feet away from Rick, the electrical engine whining in little spurts as he moved into position. I rolled my bike up to him. All right then, let's do this thing, Gordon said exuberantly. Rick could barely contain an eye roll. The front porch crowd had gathered on the edge of the field, most of them well lubricated and whooping it up. Gramps stepped out and turned to the crowd, quieting them. Since we all have cocktails to tend to, this match is going to be quick. The first team to score... He paused dramatically. What's the word I'm looking for? He looked up as if awaiting enlightenment from the heavens. Oh yes, I remember now. The first team to score... Wins! Rowdy applause. Gramps turned back to the field and gave Rick a nod. Rick leaned over like a ref at a hockey game, his cigarette dangling. He glanced left, then right, making sure all players were in position. Is everybody ready? yelled Gramps. The crowd cheered. We nodded gravely. Then, play ball! Rick dropped the ball, stood up, and grimly walked to the sidelines without looking back. I got the vague sense he thought the whole spectacle was ridiculous. In hindsight, it seems like the match lasted about 18 seconds, but it was probably less. One of the unique features of Porter Polo was that it was famously difficult to score. Matches often went on for four hours and ended in a tie because the sun went down. Not this time. Gordon buzzed over the instant Rick backed away, drew his mallet towards the heavens, and smacked the ball dead center. The hollow crack echoed through the pine trees that surrounded the field, and the crowd cheered. The ball skipped, unencumbered, towards Gordon's grinning buddy, who accelerated his cart in short electric bursts, effortlessly catching up to the pass. Foster and Smitty pedaled furiously towards the ball, while I rode my bike towards Gordon, feeling that I should cover him like some sort of half-assed street ball player. He hit the pedal and moved past me like I was standing still, the rear tire of his cart kicking up a rooster tail of loose dirt into my face. The way I remember it, the ball was passed twice and back to Gordon, who by now had left me in the dust. Literally. He smacked the ball hard, and we all watched in wonder as it flew through the air, framed by the glorious backdrop of Lake Huron, and hit the back of the tiny child's net with a soft, ropey thud. We lost so quickly that even the crowd didn't know what happened. Gordon and his pals hopped out of their carts and executed a well-choreographed victory routine, which, of course, charmed everyone. Their dance quickly disintegrated and they jumped around and hooted like vicious hyenas after a kill. The first thing I did was shoot a glance towards the sidelines, scanning the crowd for Aaron. There she was, doubled over in hysterics. Gordon stood on the Wildcliff porch, holding the red suitcase full of money. 
While I never honestly expected him to keep it, I also knew that by losing, we had blown any chance of doubling the cash and likely doomed Trina's financial bailout in the process. Gordon took the microphone. Trina was now scowling at him from the steps. He regarded the suitcase and spoke. As Jack said, this is a bet. And a bet is a bet. And he scanned the assembled revelers. We won! He dropped the microphone, turned, and walked off with the case. The crowd groaned, a few light boos. Suddenly, he stopped, did a dramatic about-face, and skipped back, picking up the microphone, his eyes mirthful. Oh, come on! He held the suitcase aloft. Do you think I could possibly keep this? The Wibho is a legend, he continued. Trina, you provide a service. The thing is, not everybody can afford to stay at the fancy hotels. His eyes sought me out, then landed. A glint. Seriously, I bet a generation got their start in those creaky old beds. I stepped in closer. It all sounded sickly familiar. In fact, I bet a couple of generations got their start there. The crowd laughed with him, appreciating the sexy time undertones. He continued. They'll bring their kids to the island. I could feel my sweaty scalp and ears heating up. He was delivering my speech. It was the identical spiel that I'd given that afternoon early in the summer to Trina after dropping off the wheeler's bags. I chomped down on my tongue. He continued, That's the way we do things here. We take care of our own. On it goes. The porch crowd responded with a low, Aww. Gramps tipped his hat towards Gordon. Shameless. He even had the gall to pinch the line that I'd pinched from Gramps. With a budding showman's gift for PR, he withdrew a check from the pocket of his khaki dockers and held it up. This check is written out to you, Trina, on behalf of the entire Whitaker family. It covers your back taxes in full, he paused dramatically. For a year, the crowd erupted in cheers. Thank you for everything you do for this island. Trina, stunned, tears in her eyes, walked straight to Gordon and gave him a heartfelt hug. Gordon wasn't upstaging me. He was kicking my ass all over the wild cliff porch. He'd pulled off the impossible, transforming himself, his gang, even his stupid little golf carts into the cavalry, arriving to rescue the aging damsel in her fading hotel. The whole scene reminded me of one of Bull's cheap-ass bungee cords stretched too far. Shit, I practically teared up myself. The flushing sensation was creeping down my neck and heading towards my ass. I reflexively joined in the clapping. The sound of my own claps and the unfiltered relief on the face of Trina brought me back. We did it. Not exactly how I imagined doing it, but we did it. Then, the cheap metaphorical bungee cord snapped. From the back of the porch, I heard a panicked woman's voice crying out, Call a doctor! I barely remember pushing through the tightly clustered crowd, but what I saw next will stay with me forever. It was Gramps, stretched out on the wicker swing. His skin was pallid blue, his mouth contorted. Big Jack ripped open Gramps' plaid shirt with both hands. His buttons flew off, and one of them hit me straight in the eye. The oddest things stay with you. Gramps' eyes were closed. He wasn't breathing. I spotted his University of Michigan baseball cap on the ground, faded blue, almost brown, with a block letter M. 
He had once told me that he had worn that hat to 138 Michigan football games. He had to be bullshitting, but maybe not. It was a pretty precise number to make up. The old man was a super fan if there ever was one. I picked it up and brushed it off as Dad pressed rhythmic hands down on the old man's chest, trying to restart his shattered heart. Then the crowd parted, giving him space as an island medic rushed in and began proper CPR. But I already knew. The light had gone out. Funeral, August 7, 1989. Gramps' funeral was one of the most well-attended and non-depressing funerals the island had ever known. His respect level cut like a Ginsu knife across all strata of the island. The well-to-do business owners and wealthy cottagers were there because, well, in many ways, he was one of them. A hard-driving, successful entrepreneur in his day. He was a man who had created businesses and knew how to talk finance with the best of them. He was, as his obituary accurately stated, a business leader. I may have been the only person attending the funeral that day that knew how he really felt about that moneyed scene. He'd labeled it phony baloney to me many times. Jackie, you can be whatever you want in this world, but for Christ's sake, stay away from the phony baloney bullshit. He didn't golf, he'd never joined a country club or owned a sailboat. But he played the game, pressed the right flesh, and he was beloved by that crowd. The Islanders had their own reason for loving him, and it was more straightforward. He spent time with them. Whenever we couldn't find Gramps for dinner, the first place to look was either the Mustang Lounge or the pool hall above Horn's Bar, where he'd be racking it up with the locals. He was a legendary pool shark and loved nothing more than to listen to island stories from the old-timers, many of whom had the strong Chippewa bloodline that guaranteed a fiery tale. While my ancestors may have fled Ireland for a better life in America, these islanders had never fled anything. Their ancestors had paddled beaver pelts and canoes through these very Mackinac waters, long before the word tourist had even been invented. Gramps worshipped that reality. We had the services at St. Anne's Church. As Father Pete finished up his sermon, a light round of laughter echoed through the large, airy space. I craned my neck, glancing first to my sister Beth, who had come up for the service from her job downstate, then to my dad. He leaned over and whispered to me, Get your hanky ready, kid. From the back of the church, two members of the University of Michigan marching band, in full uniform and holding trumpets, strode in time to the pew. Father Pete stepped back to give them space. I shared a look with Beth. She shook her head and hit me with a look that said, Don't ask me. The trumpeters stood for a moment, silently counting off a start. They raised their instruments in unison. It was the most beautiful version of the Victors, the University of Michigan fight song, I had ever heard. Slow and solemn. The congregation erupted in a spontaneous laugh sob as the musicians played their respects. My dad looked down at his feet. I could hear teardrops slowly drop, drop, dropping on the paper program in his hand. The song finished up. He raised his head and wiped away a few tears. He looked at me, breaking into a wide grin, and began to laugh. 
He looked skyward, and, almost to himself, he whispered, On it goes. Gramps was gone, but the wake at Wildcliff was a party, just the way he'd wanted. The Kingston Trio, his favorite band of all time, blasted on the stereo, a rousing version of Tijuana Jail. Laughter and stories echoed across the porch. I stood with a few of the boys and took it all in. The old guy did a lot, Foster said, observing the crowd. Look at all these people. We should be so lucky when we kick. I noticed Gordon and his father, silver-haired and heavy-set, chatting in a quiet corner. Bill Whitaker had the glowing jowls of a wealthy sailor and always smelled like expensive aftershave. Aaron stood with them, looking pleasantly bored. We connected with a glance. She excused herself and walked over to me, putting her hand lightly on my shoulder. It wasn't a moment to notice such things, but it was obvious she'd never shared our dinner escapade with Gordon the night she abandoned him at the Grand. So, I guess she wasn't even considering me a credible threat. Wonderful. I'm sorry, Jack. It was a true honor to meet your grandfather. I'll never forget that night, watching him dance. I'm glad you got that chance, I said. He liked you. I thought back to Gramps' speech to me that night on the porch and smiled to myself. He liked you a lot. She noted the brown leather camera case strapped around my shoulder. Capturing some life with that thing, I hope. Today, I said, no. Actually, today our featured subject is, wait for it, death. Jesus, Mary and Joseph, Jack, you're terrible. She smacked me, but it was obvious she appreciated a little taste of dark humor. Ah, he'd be fine with it. And yes, I've been taking a ton of photos lately. Your mysterious little lecture that night? Go deeper? Turns out it wasn't complete gibberish. Good. You never know. You just might be talented. I started to protest, but she cut me off. Just take the compliment, McGuinn. I don't hand many out. I nodded. Fair enough. Truth was, I was embarrassed, and I could feel my face flushing. Talented was a word nobody on planet Earth had ever used to describe me. I turned away and noticed Gordon wearing a tailored dark suit with a tie undone speaking with my dad. He leaned in, nodding thoughtfully, and gestured as Big Jack listened closely. Bill Whitaker was standing a few steps away, keenly observing the exchange. I felt my stomach tighten. Something didn't feel right. Aaron followed my gaze to the conversation. Looks like you were right about him, Jack. Which part? You said he would make a deal at a wake. She shook her head. Looks like that's exactly what he's doing. 